Okay, if you've got your Bibles, open them up to 2 Timothy chapter 3. 2 Timothy chapter 3, and as we talk about heritage and the very things that have been passed down to us that we want to cultivate and continue in our family of churches, at the heart of that is our belief in the Word of God. And so I'm going to be reading from and preaching on 2 Timothy chapter 3, the whole chapter. So I'll read the text out loud, and then I'll lead us in prayer once more. 2 Timothy chapter 3, starting in verse 1. But understand this, that in these last days there will come times of difficulty, for people will be lovers of self, lovers of money, proud, arrogant, abusive, disobedient to their parents, ungrateful, unholy, heartless, unappeasable, slanderous, without self-control, brutal, not loving good, treacherous, reckless, swollen with conceit, lovers of pleasure rather than lovers of God, having the appearance of godliness but denying its power. Avoid such people. For among them are those who creep into households and capture weak women, burdened with sins and led astray by various passions." always learning and never able to arrive at a knowledge of the truth. Just as Janus and Jambres opposed Moses, so these men also opposed the truth, men corrupted in mind and disqualified regarding the faith. But they will not get very far, for their folly will be plain to all, as was that of those two men. You, however, have followed my teaching, my conduct, my aim in life, my faith, my patience, my love, my steadfastness, my persecutions and sufferings that happened to me at Antioch, at Iconium, and at Lystra, which persecutions I endured. Yet from them all the Lord rescued me. Indeed, all who desire to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted, while evil people and impostors will go on from bad to worse, deceiving and being deceived. But as for you, continue in what you have learned and have firmly believed knowing from whom you learned it and how from childhood you have been acquainted with the sacred writings, which are able to make you wise for salvation through faith in Christ Jesus. All scripture is breathed out by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness, that the man of God may be complete, equipped for every good work. This is God's word. Let's pray together. God, we come before you knowing that there are so many conflicting voices in our culture and in our lives telling us who to be, telling us how to live, telling us what to do. But God, we thank you that your voice pierces through the noise and the chaos and brings clarity and coherence to our lives. And God, we ask today that your word would go forth And that your spirit would be at work in our hearts, bringing the very change and healing and redemption that we long for. God, I pray for this church, Reality Carpinteria, on this day, that your spirit would move and that you would shepherd your church through the preaching of the word. Lord, we believe that your same Holy Spirit who inspired these words thousands of years ago is with us today revealing their truth to us, applying it to our lives, and leading us into faithfulness for your glory. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen.
Well, deep down, everyone is looking for a story to live by, a foundation to stand on, and a voice to give perspective on their lives. But we can only truly find that in the Word of God. Only God's Word gives us the story that makes sense of our lives. Only God's Word gives us a foundation that's unshakable. Only God's Word gives us that voice that gives the perspective that we need in our lives. And today we're looking at 2 Timothy chapter 3, which is one of the most important passages in the Bible about the meaning and the power of the Bible. And here's what we're going to see in this chapter. There's crisis in the world, but there's clarity in the word. And the breakdown is pretty simple, but the difference could change your lives. So let's walk through this. And in verses one through nine, you see the crisis that's in the world. And let me help you understand their culture and the crisis that they were experiencing. Paul is older in life. He's in prison. He's written a letter to a young Timothy who is in Ephesus. And there's a lot that's going on there. They're experiencing sin, brokenness, tension, all of that. And I think we need to understand here how bad it was for them. There's a temptation for us when we're reading the Bible to assume that they lived in some kind of uh, Christian bubble, sanitized world where everything was easy and simple for them because the Apostle Paul was writing letters for them. No, it, it couldn't be further from the truth. It was hard, it was sinful, it was all of those things. I think oftentimes we have like a chronological snobbery, looking back thinking that we're so much better than other people. Those who were before us, who don't have the technological advancements that we have. But I also think we even do that with sinfulness. We think like, well, yeah, they were sinners, but they don't know how to sin how we sin today. Like they didn't have the internet and all the drugs that we have and all this, like we, like, we know how to sin today. No, what they were experiencing then was, was full-on wickedness, full-on pain, brokenness, division, all of it. I mean, just listen to the descriptions that it uses about them. Proud, arrogant, abusive, controlled by passions, lovers of self, lovers of money, kidnapping women. I mean, this was truly a culture in crisis. And it was happening in a very influential city. Let me tell you a little bit about Ephesus, just so you understand the scene. Ephesus was an urban center in the ancient world. It was the capital of the Roman province of Asia, which is modern-day Turkey. And it was huge. There was over 250,000 people in Ephesus. Only Rome and Alexandria were larger. Ephesus was cosmopolitan and multi-ethnic. It was pagan and pluralistic. And culturally, Ephesus was known for certain things. I mean, Carpinteria is known for certain things. Los Angeles is known for certain things. Well, Ephesus was known culturally for three things in particular. Sex, money, and magic. What a city, right? They were known for sex because there was a sex goddess named Artemis who was worshipped there. In fact, there was a temple dedicated to Artemis that was 60 feet tall. It was one of the seven wonders of the ancient world. And the image of Artemis was on their coins. They had a month of the year named after her. Olympic-style games were held in her honor. And she was considered the guardian and protector of the city. So Ephesus was literally a city shaped by the worship of a sex goddess. It was also defined by money. It was a port city, a hub of commerce and trade, and therefore very wealthy. And then thirdly, it was defined and known for magic. 
Yes. Ephesus was the magic capital of the world. If you went there, you would see magicians and sorcerers and hear of incantations. It was like a Harry Potter convention, but all the time. And so there's all this chaos going on in Ephesus. There's all this debauchery that's listed out here in 2 Timothy 3. But I want to zoom in on verse 7 where it says, In the midst of all this, they're always learning and never able to arrive at a knowledge of the truth. That they're grasping after what's real. They want to know how to deal with life. And so they're listening to the latest teacher the newest idea. They're creating conversations about how to live in the midst of all of that. But they're never satisfied. They're never able to arrive at a knowledge of the truth. And in verse 8, it actually says they get to a place that they oppose the truth. But then in verse 9, it says, and yet their folly will be plain to all. That this search for truth, but never arriving at the truth, leads to this place of foolishness that doesn't even make sense at all. You get a glimpse of this happening in the city of Ephesus in a story from the book of Acts. Acts chapter 19 tells us about Ephesus. And what happened there is that the gospel had taken root and God was changing people's lives in an incredible way. People being forgiven of their sins, set free from the slavery of sin, And what happened was, is that the movement of the gospel was going forth so powerfully that it literally affected the economy of the city. And here's how. Uh, A common thing in their culture was they would worship idols, and in particular, idols, small statues made of Artemis, the sex goddess. So there's a man named Demetrius, and he was a silversmith. And Demetrius and others would, their job was to make these small statues of Artemis that then they would sell and people would worship. But the problem is, is that as people met Jesus, that they were worshiping him alone as the living God and therefore no longer buying these little statues of Artemis. And so Demetrius, the silversmith, gets upset about this. He starts riling up the other silversmiths about it. And as you read in Acts chapter 19, what it leads to is rioting in the streets of Ephesus. And they're literally all coming together rioting. And it says they're chanting for hours, great is Artemis, great is Artemis. In one voice, they're chanting this. And yet, the whole thing was marked by confusion and a lack of clarity. It says in Acts chapter 19 that people were coming and gathering and joining and they didn't even know what they were doing. Like they're chanting and going with the, with the crowd and like, what are we even here? What are we doing here? They're driven by uninformed passion. It's certainly a picture of a culture in crisis with their folly being exposed. But before we go too far in kind of looking at Ephesus and critiquing them and thinking of all of this, you've got to look at verse 5 where it says, many of these people had an appearance of godliness but denying its power. When the Lord wants to confront sin, he always starts with his own people. And one of the greatest dangers is that we would assume that the greatest threat to the church is outside the church. What we see here is that this debauchery, this sinfulness, this wickedness was happening in the church as well as outside of the church. So you have this picture of a culture in crisis. Now, Carpinteria is not Ephesus, I know that, but we too are a part of a culture that is certainly in crisis. 
In our country, there is political tension. There's cultural confusion. There's international turmoil. We've seen these patterns of sin and wickedness exposed in our culture the abuse of authority, sexual harassment, racism, police brutality, on and on and on we could go. And yet in the midst of all of that, it's just as true of our culture as it was in their culture that we're always learning and never able to arrive at a knowledge of the truth. In the midst of chaos, people want to know what's true, what matters, what's real, how to live. And so we're hungry for that. We grasp after that. We listen to another podcast. We take another class. We, we watch another show. We, we see another documentary. We're hungry for the truth, always grasping but never arriving at a knowledge of the truth. But I think in our culture today, we've one-upped Ephesus because not only do we deny the truth, Our culture denies the concept of truth. And this leads, honestly, to a silliness, a foolishness, um, where I think the assessment of Ephesus is true of us. Their folly will be made plain to all. To where we deny the idea of truth and yet grasp after it in such a way that leads to self-contradictory, hypocritical lives in our culture. I mean, listen, think about it. People say in our culture, there is no truth. But we all live knowing that there is. So, so try, to go, try, try to take that mentality, there is no truth. What's true for you is true for you and it uh, doesn't have to be true for me. Try that out uh, next time you go to the grocery store. And when there's a long line of people, just walk right up to the front, cut in and put your stuff down there. And then when everybody starts freaking out, just say, well, that was true for me to be able to do that. How's that going to work? It's not, right? Because we know there's truth. Uh, some of you are students or some of you have kids in school. Next time you've got a, a class and you take a test and maybe you miss a question, try going up to the professor afterwards or the teacher afterwards and saying, well, I know you marked this one wrong, but for me, what's true is C, not B on that. How's that going to work out? It's not, right? Because we know deep down that there is such a thing as truth and we appeal to it all the time. So it leads to this place in our culture where I think we can say that the folly is made plain to all and you have all these contradictions. So let me just give you some examples of, of the way that this plays out culturally. Uh, you will hear two very opposing messages in our culture all the time. One is that there's no, there's no such thing as right and wrong for everybody. Like you get to determine what's right and wrong for you and let other people determine what's right and wrong for them. You're going to hear that message repeatedly. There is no right and wrong. You know what else you're going to hear at the same time? Something's going to happen in the news. Everyone's going to freak out. There's going to be an explosion of moral outrage. And everybody's going to say, that is so wrong. How terrible. Those people are bad. They're evil. That's wrong. Wait, so which is it? There's, there's, no, there's no right and wrong. Or clearly that's obvious that that's so wrong. It's self-contradictory. We, we see this folly being exposed before our eyes. I'll give you another example of this. The greatest virtue in our culture, what's considered the greatest virtue, is tolerance. Just be tolerant towards everybody. Don't tell anyone that they're wrong. Uh, the, the worst thing that you could say about someone in our culture is that they're intolerant, right? So you're constantly going to hear this message of tolerance, 
And yet, at the same time, many of the people who are championing tolerance are going to be very intolerant in the way they do so towards people like Christians, right? So it's, it's contradictory. It's hypocritical. I'll give you another example. You'll hear people say all the time in our, our culture, there is no absolute truth. There's no one truth that kind of uh, is true for everybody. There's no absolute truth. Well, you know, I might respond to that statement by asking the question, is it absolutely true that there's no absolute truth? You sound pretty sure about that. Are you, are you absolutely confident that that's true for all times? See, the statement itself is self-contradictory because saying there is no absolute truth is making an absolute truth claim. I'll tell you a story of, of a way that uh, this played out in our culture a while ago. My wife and I watched a documentary about Lance Armstrong recently. And man, I had forgotten the heights that he had ascended to and how far he fell. For, for those of you who maybe have forgotten or don't know, uh, Lance Armstrong was considered the greatest cyclist in the history of the sport. I mean, he just dominated. And his story was so captivating because he started winning and everyone knew who he was. And then right at, on the rise, uh, he gets cancer. And he, go, he goes out, everyone assumes he's done at that point. But he beats cancer. He makes this great comeback and starts winning again and again and again. I believe that he won seven times the Tour de France and just dominating the sport. And not only that, but he, he starts this organization where they're raising money to try and beat cancer. And he's, he's giving people hope who are suffering and all these people are supporting him. And it was just incredible what he was doing. And then the accusations started coming that he was doping. That he was using performance-enhancing drugs that had been outlawed by the sport. And when those accusations came, Lance Armstrong denied them vehemently. That is not true. I am not doing that. And then more accusations came and he pushed back even harder. That is not the truth. I'm working hard. You're discrediting everything. They got more and more tense. He denied them again and again until finally it all came out. The truth came out that he had been doping all along using these performance-enhancing drugs. And his sponsors pulled back. Uh, everyone was outraged at the lies that he had been telling. People who he had been giving hope to and helping who had cancer were hurt and disappointed. But let me ask you this. If truth doesn't matter, then why was everybody so worked up? Why were people so angry and offended and hurt and wounded? Why can't we just say, why can't we just let him say what's true for him is true for him? That he was being true to himself and achieving his dreams of winning in cycling. Because we know that there is truth and we know that we are called to live according to it. I think there's been a, a shift in our culture in the last handful of years that's really significant. And I'll tell you why. The, the shift, I, I saw the shift, or at least realized it several years ago when our government uh, mandated that kids in public schools can choose which bathroom that they want to use based on the gender that they choose for themselves. Now, there's a lot that we could talk about with the mandate that happened and, and everything there. But here's what I want you to think about with this. For years, what we've been hearing from our culture is that science is the authority. 
That's the, that's the message that we've been hearing for years and literally hundreds of years. I mean, dating back to the Enlightenment, shaping all of the Western world, that if you really want to appeal to something as true, it has to be empirically verifiable. You have to be able to demonstrate it scientifically. We've been told over and over and over again that science is the authority. But when I heard this mandate about the bathrooms... I recognized that something different was happening here. That science wasn't functioning as the authority any longer. See, if, if a little boy says, well, I want to consider myself a girl and therefore use the girl's bathroom, you can show scientifically that he's a boy. You can look at the chromosomes. You can show biologically. It's very clear scientifically, biologically, that he's a boy. But if he says with his mouth, but today I'm a girl, then we are being called culturally to recognize that as true. In other words, here's the shift. Science is no longer the authority. Self is the authority. That it's my sovereign word that declares who I am, that that declares what's true for me, what declares what's right or wrong for me. Self is the ultimate authority in our culture and we're literally bucking against our creator saying, you can't say who I am, I get to say who I am. We live in a world that's living by a secular narrative where we've replaced God with the sovereign self and it culminates in individual happiness. And that's led to a crisis in our world, a crisis of confusion, a crisis of tension, a crisis of truth. But while there's crisis in the world, there is clarity in God's word. And there's a real shift in verse 10 in this passage when Paul is talking to the young Timothy about everything that's going on in the world and then even in the church. But in verse 10, he says, you, however... And then he goes on from that point to call Timothy to be set apart by the word of God. He's reminding Timothy, you're supposed to be different. And he's reminding us, you're supposed to be different. I think a lot of Christians, at least in America, where Christianity has been mainstream for so long, we we get surprised and confused when people don't understand us or when people attack us because of what we believe or how we live our lives. And it's almost like we think we've done something wrong. And so, you know, with, with a decline of Christianity, at least nominal Christianity in our country, some people freak out over that and think, oh no, what's happening? But I think what's happening right now in our culture is not an obstacle for the church. It's an opportunity for the church. It's an opportunity for the church to understand our true nature, that we are exiles, that this place is not our home, that America is not the promised land, and God has called us to be faithful to him wherever he has placed us. And we are set apart by the word of God. We have a distinct ethic and unique beliefs that are shaped by our devotion to Jesus. And when I say we're set apart, that doesn't mean that we're just better than everyone else. No, we're set apart by God's grace as it's revealed in Scripture. 
And so I want to answer two really important questions from verses 10 through 17 here. And the first one is, what is Scripture? And the second one is, what is Scripture for? So first of all, this extremely important question, what is Scripture? Look at verse 16. You've got the answer clear. It says, all Scripture is breathed out by God. Now, those four words, breathed out by God, are one word in Greek. It's theopneustos. And that's really a compound word of theos, which means God, and pneuma, which means breath or spirit. In other words, the scriptures are, are the breath of God, inspired by the spirit of God communicating the voice of God. To put it most succinctly, Scripture is the Word of God. And I know that you might hear that and you might think, of course, like that because it almost sounds trite over time, like we've heard that so much that Scripture is the Word of God. But this is an incredibly powerful idea. And when we talk about Scripture being the Word of God, We need to understand the depths here. Theologians will talk about this as the doctrine of inspiration. One of the reasons for that is that the King James Version translated uh, verse 16 here as Scripture is given by inspiration. Now, it's certainly true that Scripture is inspired by God, but I fear that that we don't understand the fullness of it if we only think of inspiration. Here's why. When we use the word inspiration in our culture today, We usually mean something like motivated by or influenced by. To say that I'm inspired by something means that, right? That that I I watched the latest Mary Poppins movie and I'm inspired to try and fly with an umbrella, right? But when we talk about scripture being inspired by God, it means so much more than that. It doesn't just mean that Paul was motivated by God or influenced by God as he wrote these words. No, when we talk about scripture being inspired by God, we're saying the Holy Spirit made sure, made clear that these words are the very words of God. In other words, when scripture speaks, God speaks. speaks. And to reject scripture is to reject God. But to submit to scripture is to submit to God. And here's why uh, we need to understand this. Scripture is not just a book that God dropped off and kind of backed off and said, make sure you obey the rules. I'll meet you in heaven if you get here. Okay, that that is not uh, how we are to think of Scripture. No, Scripture is the voice of God. It's living and active. And God's word is an extension of himself. That's why if you reject God's word, you reject God because you can't separate scripture from himself. And I I wouldn't want you to go from this today saying, wow, this book, this book, this book, and being all about the book. No, it's about God, but this is God's word. God speaks to us. He reveals himself to us through the scriptures. And I always hear people today saying, if I could only hear from God, Lord, What do you think? Lord, what do you like? Lord, if I could only hear from God and I want to say to them, God has spoken. I hear people saying, if if God would only speak and tell me why he created us, I want to say God has spoken. He made us 
that we might know him and love him and be known by him and loved by him. I hear people say, if God would only speak and tell me what he's like, God has spoken. He's merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness. People say, if God would only speak and tell me what he thinks of me, God has spoken. His thoughts towards you are as many as the sand on the seashore, and he loves you. God has spoken, and that changes everything. It means that when Scripture tells us to do something, it's not a suggestion, it's a command. It means that when Scripture says God's going to do something, it's not a goal, it's a guarantee. It means when Scripture says something is forbidden, it's not a prohibition of fun, it's a warning of destruction. Scripture is the Word of God and is worthy of our reverence. My wife and I... uh, have been reading through the book of Exodus with our kids at night before they go to bed. And the other night we were reading about when Moses went up on Mount Sinai and he met with the Lord and he spoke with the Lord. And it says that God answered in thunder. And we talked about this with our kids for a while, this idea of God's voice being like thunder to them. And it was It was so captivating to them. It's very powerful, vivid imagery, right? Of God's voice being like thunder to us. Well, a couple days later, I was standing out on our porch with my four-year-old daughter and the rain started coming down. And this is a big deal, right? It's Los Angeles. I mean, we don't get rain very often. So the rain's falling and me and my daughter are standing there watching it. And then lightning strikes. And right after that, of course, you hear this loud, roaring thunder. And my four-year-old daughter looks at me and then looks at the sky and says, God is speaking. (laughs) And I thought, man, what if we had that kind of reaction? Every time we opened up our Bibles, that we thought, God is speaking. This is the voice of the Lord thundering into our lives communicating who God is, how he's called us to live, showing us his grace for us. The Bible is the word of God. This is incredible. And not only is scripture the word of God, it's the word of God written through the words of people. In other words, it has a dual authorship. You see this in 2 Peter chapter 1, verse 21, where Peter says, For no prophecy was ever produced by the will of man, but men spoke from God as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. So it's this dual authorship, God's word through the words of people in different languages, different cultures, different continents, different time periods. So there's a a very organic nature to the scriptures. And you might hear that and say, well, yeah, but then how can God write perfect words through imperfect people? Well, the answer is because God can draw straight lines with crooked sticks. And that's what he's done through the scriptures. And so scripture is the perfect, inerrant, authoritative word of God. And it's through the word that God rules over us. Uh, Think about it like this. God reigns through his word. And that's how kings usually reign. A king sits in his throne and speaks, and it happens. He's that powerful. He doesn't have to get up and do it. He speaks, and it happens. Well, Genesis 1 and 2 actually present God as a king reigning through his word. He speaks, and it happens. 
And God reigns through his word. And that means that his word is the absolute authority in all that we believe and in all that we do. The word of God is the authority in our doctrine and our practice. And I know that the word authority isn't a popular one today. But as much as people push against the idea of authority, we all appeal to authorities at different times. I mean, think about it like this. What settles a matter for you? If you're having a dispute, a disagreement, what do you appeal to to determine what is right or wrong, what is true and what is false? I mean, practically speaking, we we appeal to things all the time, right? You Google it. You ask Alexa. (laughs) But deep down, there are different authorities that we appeal to, whether it's science, like I mentioned earlier, saying, well, is it proven? Or maybe it's my feelings. Well, this is just what I think. Or maybe it's tradition of this is the way that we've always done it. But we all appeal to different authorities to settle a dispute. Well, for Christians... What settles the dispute is scripture. And yes, scripture needs to be rightly interpreted. But the scriptures in and of themselves are the authority for us. Now, in 2 Timothy 3, there's a lot of big theological weighty words in there. But perhaps the hardest word to receive is the little word all. All scripture is breathed out by God. Because It's one thing to acknowledge that Scripture is the Word of God while having a tendency to pick and choose which parts that you want to submit to. And this is what we do so often. And this is honestly what is so easy for Christians and churches to do. If you go and look at uh, the statements of faith on church websites or for Christian ministries, you'll recognize quickly they almost all say the same thing about the Bible. We believe the Bible is the inspired word of God, authoritative and inerrant in all things, blah, blah, blah. A lot of them have that. And yet what's so easy is then functionally to just appeal to certain parts of the scripture. But all scripture is breathed out by God. Uh, Many people have done what uh, Thomas Jefferson did with his Bible. Have you heard about that? Thomas Jefferson was... uh, a man shaped by the Enlightenment, a modern man. And he had learned with many others about science. And so the old religious superstitions are for for the dark ages. And so he didn't believe in miracles. And so Thomas Jefferson took his Bible and a pair of scissors and went and literally cut out all the miracles from the scriptures, including the resurrection of Jesus. Now, we can hear that and think, uh, oh, I would never do that. I would never take a pair of scissors to my Bible And yet, how often is that exactly what we do today? Maybe it's not with miracles, but maybe it's what the Bible says about sexuality or about gender or about hell or about the justice of God. Whatever it is, that that changes in every day and in every age. But the Lord has called us to submit to all the scriptures. See, what we often do is we stand over the scriptures picking and choosing what, what parts of them we like and what parts of them we want to get rid of. We stand over the scriptures as if we are the authority. What we need to do is to stand under the scriptures, allowing them to pick us apart, to pick and choose and to say this needs to go. We will either 
try and twist the scriptures to align with what we want, or we will conform ourselves to the scriptures. The early church father, Augustine, put it well when he said this, if you believe what you like in the gospels and reject what you don't like, it is not the gospel you believe, but yourself. So we've seen that scripture is the word of God. That's what it is. But now we've got to ask this second question, what is scripture for? And I'll tell you this, it's not just for information. Okay, the last thing that we need is more Christians with huge heads and shriveled hearts walking around beating people up with their Bibles, okay? The scripture is not just for information, but for transformation. It has purpose behind it. God breathed these words for a purpose. And I'll share a few of those with you. At the heart of it, the first purpose of the scriptures is that they point us to Jesus. You see this in verse 15 of 2 Timothy 3, where it says, the sacred writings which are able to make you wise for salvation through faith in Christ Jesus. The sacred writings here are referring directly to the Old Testament. So what I love about this is it's saying this story of the Old Testament is fulfilled in Christ as the hero of that story. And a lot of people know the individual stories of of Jesus walking on water, Noah's Ark, Jesus dying on the cross. And we kind of look at them as a bunch of stories about morality of you should be like Jesus or you should be like David, you should be like Moses and be like Jesus too. But what we miss is that the Bible is one grand narrative that culminates in Christ. It begins with creation, it ends with new creation in the middle as Jesus making all things new. Jesus himself talks about the scriptures this way as a story that, that have their apex in his death and in his resurrection. Luke 24 tells us about Jesus walking on the road to Emmaus. And he comes up alongside of two of his disciples. It's one of the most comical and ironic stories in the scriptures because these two disciples are walking and they're hanging their heads down because the Messiah has died. And, walk, and, and walking up alongside of them is Jesus, the risen, resurrected Jesus, but they don't recognize him. And they say, don't you know, haven't you heard that the Messiah died? And so here you have Jesus and they don't recognize him. How is Jesus going to reveal himself to them? Well, it says he goes through the prophets and Moses and the Psalms and shows to them all the things concerning himself. I mean, he must have gone through Genesis and showed how Jesus is the seed of the woman who crushes the head of the serpent. And then to Exodus, showing how Jesus is the unblemished lamb whose blood is spread over us to spare us from wrath. He must have gone to Leviticus and showed how Jesus is the atoning sacrifice that forgives our sins. But what's most amazing about this story in Luke 24 is what Jesus didn't do. Think about it. Here are these two disciples. They're with Christ. They don't recognize him for who he is. This is the resurrected reigning Christ. He could have just radiated his glory he could have just wowed them and said, guys, it's me. It's Jesus, the risen king. But he doesn't do that. What does he do? He walks them through the scriptures, showing him, showing them who he is. What's amazing about that is we have just as much access 
to the same scriptures that Jesus walked them through as they did then. We are presented with Christ through the scriptures. And we need to recognize that because otherwise we just make Jesus out to be whoever we want him to be. He starts to look more and more like us and we use him as an authority to prop up the things that we've already decided on. So we see in this that the written word leads us to the incarnate word. That that scripture has purpose. It's not an end in and of itself. We don't believe in justification by quiet time or salvation by reading through the Bible in a year, although those are great things. We believe that the scriptures point us to the good news of Jesus Christ. This is a gospel book, okay? It's not a a book of morality. It's not a, a rule book. This is a book that tells a story of God's grace in Christ. God speaks, and that means that God has initiated. God is not the God who's out to get you. I know that many of you think of God this way. Many people in our culture do, that God is in heaven, arms folded, looking down, disappointed. He's dangling something out in front of you that you can't actually achieve, but he enjoys punishing you and you can't get it anyways. And that God is looking down cruelly over you. That's how a lot of people think of God. That's not the God of the Bible. The God of the Bible is the God who has broken the silence by speaking, who invites us to relationship with him. The the word became flesh and dwelt among us. He sent his own son, Jesus, who is the fullness of the revelation of God. That's why he's called the word of God. And Jesus lived a perfect life. And then he took that perfect life and he offered it up on the cross as a sacrifice to forgive our sins, to reconcile us to God. And they placed him in a tomb, but even the tomb couldn't contain him. He rose from the grave, conquering death itself, and he's alive today, changing lives today. And so it's one of my greatest joys as a pastor to be able to proclaim over you this good news that by God's grace, you're made new. That in Christ, you're made whole. That by the blood of the lamb, you've been washed clean. That you're a son or a daughter of the king. That you are the beloved of God and he delights in you. He sings over you. He loves you and he is with you and he is for you. This is good news. But I know that some of you have had words of shame spoken over you and placed upon you throughout your life. Words that have clung to you or loomed over you, unwanted, unloved, rejected, alone. And I want you to know that God's words of grace speak louder over you than any words of shame that have been placed upon you. And the scriptures are not a religious burden weighing us down. They are words of grace that change us from within. The word of God points us to the son of God so that we can live for the glory of God. We also learn this purpose of God's word, not only to point us to the son, but to sanctify us over time. You see this in verse 14 where where Paul says to Timothy, continue in what you learned and have firmly believed. There's this progression of you learn and you believe, but then you continue. 
It's not just I learned that or I read my Bible and from cover to cover and I'm done now. No, you continue in that. There's, there's a lot of language in 2 Timothy 3 about endurance, about suffering, about withstanding persecution. We need the word to sustain us in the midst of that. But not only does the scriptures point us to Jesus and sanctify us over time, they equip us for the ministry. You see this in verse 16 where it says, all scripture is breathed out by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness, that the man of God may be complete, equipped for every good work. It equips us to be able to do what the Lord has called us to do. Could you imagine if uh, you're a construction worker and you went to a construction site, but you forgot your tools? Like, what would you do? Would you be of much use in that situation? Like, like, how can you get the job done of building what you've been called to build? What are you gonna karate chop that board in half? What are you gonna hammer that nail with your elbow? Like, it's not gonna work, right? If you don't have the proper equipment, you can't do the work that you've been called to do. Well, the scriptures equip us to do the work that God has called us to do for this training in righteousness, for correction, for reproof, for teaching, that we might grow, that we might be mature in Christ. Now, here's what we've seen so far. There's crisis in the world, but there's clarity in the word. And so reality carpenteria, that leads to my question for you. What's in your heart? What's in your hand? What's in your church? And I want to charge you, both for you as individuals, but then for you as a church corporately. And so to start off with you as an individual, think about this. Jesus says, man does not live by bread alone, but by every word that proceeds from the mouth of God. Do you know and believe that you need God's word just as much as you need a breakfast this morning? Do you know and believe that apart from God's word, that you will be malnourished and you will starve spiritually? I want to call you to the word of the Lord, to read the word, to study the word, to live by the word, to sing the word, to pray the word, to recognize that God's word is him initiating and inviting us into deep relationship with him. For some of you, you've questioned God's word. And we need to recognize, going all the way back to the Garden of Eden, that the enemy's first way of attacking is by questioning God's word. His question was, did God really say? And that's what the enemy's gonna come along and whisper constantly. He's going to slander God's character by questioning God's word. And so I want you to remember that God's word truly does reveal God's heart, that he's trustworthy and true, that he's reliable and faithful, that he is loving and good and kind, and he has taken all of his power and directed it for our good. Follower of Jesus, let the word of Christ dwell in you richly teaching and admonishing one another in all wisdom, singing psalms and hymns and spiritual songs with thankfulness in your hearts to God. But I want to charge you not only as individuals, but for you as a church together. 
Because there's a lot of temptation for churches today to adapt the word or soften the word or dress the word up. But I want to remind you that the gospel doesn't need to be updated. It needs to be proclaimed. That the word doesn't need to be softened. It needs to be preached. And I think one of the dangers for any church, the more you mature, the more you go on in years, the danger is to take the things that are the most important, the most foundational, and start to take them for granted. You start to assume those things. Yeah, of course, the word of God. Oh, yeah. And in taking it for granted, you lose its very power. What a great opportunity for you right now, Reality Carpenteria, to remember that it's about the preaching of the word, not about the preacher of the word. As Pastor Britt is on sabbatical right now, for you to rally, to to support the, the leaders in this church who are so faithfully shepherding right now, who are doing an incredible job with that. You're shepherded by, by really godly people. But to put your confidence in the word, not in a person, not in one preacher, but in the word of God, knowing that Jesus is the chief shepherd and we are called as his sheep to know his voice and to follow his voice. 2 Timothy 3, of course, spills over into chapter 4, and there were no divisions in the original text of that. And I want to charge you as a church with this charge that comes from 2 Timothy chapter 4, verses 1 and 2. I want to say this to every one of you as individuals, but also to the leadership here and just to you corporately as a church. I charge you in the presence of God and of Christ Jesus, who is to judge the living and the dead, and by his appearing in his kingdom. Preach the word. Be ready in season and out of season. Reprove, rebuke, and exhort with complete patience and teaching. Preach the word. Be a church that stands upon the foundation of the word of God. And I want you to notice in there that it talks about seasons. There are many things in life that come and go, but the word of God remains forever. And, and, you know, fashions come and go, right? But what's true of, of clothes and style is just as true of churches and ministries. Uh, there are things that are trendy in churches that, that a bunch of uh, blog posts are going to be written about this latest thing and all the new churches are going to be preaching a sermon series on this and, and they're going to jump from thing to thing and what everyone's talking about. And, and there's a place for that in terms of we always need to be learning and growing and, 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 and rallying around the word of God and understanding new ways of that. But the danger is that in the midst of jumping from one thing to the next, the latest trend to the next trend, that we forget about what's unchanging, the word of God. So I want to call you to be a people who preach the word of God and live by the word of God, to be driven by your convictions in scripture, not by pragmatism or, what, or by what's easiest. I'll close with uh, a question and a story. The question is this. What if we rediscovered the power of God's word today? What if we rediscovered the power of God's word today? Let me tell you a story about a time when that happened with God's people. Uh, there was a time in the Old Testament where Israel had forgotten about God's word. They had lost God's word. And when I say they had lost God's word, I mean it literally. Like they had uh, scrolls with the scriptures 
on the scrolls, right? It wasn't like us today where, you know, you have five Bibles in your home and you've got it on your phone and you can get it on the website. So if I lose my Bible, I didn't lose the word of God, right? Like I, I've still got it somewhere else. Uh, but for them, they, they had the scrolls and they literally lost the Bible, <laughs> okay? And what happened when they lost the word of God is that it led them into idolatry and injustice, that they're worshiping all these false gods. They start oppressing the weak in their society. They're not loving God. They're not loving their neighbor. It, it led into this place of debauchery, probably not that different from the description we read in 2 Timothy 3. But one day, someone's in the temple, and they stumble upon, upon these old, dusty scrolls. They pull them out, probably unroll them on a table, and it tells us about this in 2 Kings 22, that they start reading from these old dusty scrolls and it's the word of God. And the word of God being proclaimed leads to this uh, confession of sin, of realizing we haven't loved God, we haven't loved our neighbor. It leads to a, a brokenness where they're on their knees before their Lord. It leads to them going out, literally tearing down these idols that they'd been worshiping in place of God. It led to this revival and reformation around the word of God. What if we today rediscovered the power of God's word? What if Carpinteria rediscovered the power of God's word? What if Santa Barbara rediscovered the power of God's word? What if Ventura rediscovered the power of God's word? What if Los Angeles rediscovered the power of God's word? What if Stockton, San Francisco, Boston, London, Honolulu rediscovered the power of God's word? Can you imagine it? It would be revival and reformation and healing like we've never seen. And yet, it's what exactly what we long for. And it's possible through the power of God's word. Let's pray together. God, we thank you for your word. And Lord, we confess that we've taken your word for granted. We've put it on the shelf and forgotten how incredible it is and how gracious it is that you have spoken to us, that you have invited us to know you, that you have revealed your grace to us in giving us the scriptures. God, we pray that we would be a people of your word. And by looking to your word, that we would know your son, Jesus, that we would be conformed to his image and live for his glory. And Lord, we need your same Holy Spirit who inspired these words to change our hearts within right now, to show us the beauty and the power of the gospel, that we might live for your glory. We pray this in Jesus' name, amen.